Good morning. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we get going this morning. For those uh, that get our emails, um, we sent out a prayer request this week for Barbara Granada's mother. And an update, we got, I got an email last night that, uh, that they have sent her home for hospice care. That she has um, metastatic cancer that's not treatable. And so if we want to remember the, the Granada family in our, in our prayers. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask and invite your presence here, that our minds will be enlightened, and you will dwell in our hearts and minds today, that you will be glorified in all our discussions. We pray for the Granada family, as they are going through this difficult time. You will send your spirit to comfort those who are mourning and grieving, and prepare uh, uh, Miss Granada's mother for, for what she has to face. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, we are doing the last lesson in our quarterly People in the Move, the book of Numbers, and the lesson title this week is Cities of Refuge. How many have heard of the Cities of Refuge before this week? What do, what do you think of when you think of the Cities of Refuge? What ideas come to mind? Protection. Protection. Hiding. Mercy. Mercy. And the question, did God have more in mind with these cities than just the obvious protection of an individual from retribution. And if if you're not sure, keep that in mind as we go through the lesson today. Um, Because as we try to understand these cities, does does context matter? If you saw a man taking a knife and and cutting a little child uh, with that knife, would it make a difference if he was a surgeon and working to save his life? Would the context matter? Yeah, and so let's keep context. What is the context uh, from, from God's perspective that's going on as we look at these cities of refuge? And one of the things that might, that, that might reflect on whether we, what context we see this in, this is out of Ministry of Healing, page 188. It says, the plan of life that God gave to Israel was in, intended as an object lesson for all mankind. If these principles were carried out today, what a different place the world would be. And then out of 9 Testimony 165, it says, Had the Israelites obeyed the instructions they received and profit, profited by their advantages, they would have been the world's object lesson of health and prosperity. The Israelites failed of fulfilling God's purpose and thus failed of receiving the blessings that might have been theirs. Do you agree with the idea that Old Testament Israel was taken by God as a, a, a group of people to be a teaching tool, to be an object lesson, that the things that they were instructed to do had uh, uh, relevance in an objective way, in a symbolic way, for us. Do you agree with that idea? Keep that in mind and be asking the question, in these cities of refuge, beyond the, the practical relevance to the people of that day, a place to flee, to avoid retribution, what object lesson relevance is there for the city of, of refuge as we explore this today? As a Sabbath lesson, somebody read for us the first paragraph that begins, Though God was faithful. Though God was faithful. Though God was faithful in doing all that he had promised, the nation itself, at least that first generation, proved unfaithful and, instead of inheriting the land offered it, died in a harsh wilderness on the wrong side of the Jordan River, the side they were to have fled from and not to have died in. What a tragedy, especially because it didn't need to happen. All that they had been given, all that God had done for them, and yet still they refused to trust refused to act in faith even though they had witnessed dramatic manifestations of God's power in ways that most of us never have seen, and at least in this life, probably never will. Thoughts about this paragraph? 
as you read the paragraph, do you go, yeah, what is wrong with those people? That's the intention, isn't it? So that we go, yeah, what is wrong with those people? I think there's something fundamentally flawed with the premise of the paragraph. Any thoughts on what that might be? Well, they still refuse to trust and act in faith despite witnessing dramatic manifestations of God's power. And I ask the question, what is trust based upon? When you consider the people that you trust the most with your life in this world, is it always the people who demonstrate the most power? In fact, when you see the playground bully beating up everybody on the playground and you're convinced he is the most powerful one, do you trust him the most? No. No. Uh, Some would argue that the President of the United States is the most powerful man on the planet. Some would make that argument. Um, If someone occupies a seat of power, does that cause you to trust them? When Hitler was in power, was he trustworthy? Hmm. So the lesson is arguing that because God manifested power, the people should have trusted him. What do you think about that argument? And when he struck Korah, Dathan, and Abiram with an earthquake and killed the, their, them and their children and their wives and, and all their possessions as well, and when uh, Nadab and Abihu were consumed by fire for taking fire in, and when the plagues were struck against Egypt and the whole Pharaoh's army was destroyed in the sea, those are also demonstrations of power as well. So the question, though, is, um, can God get what he wants by the exercise of power? What is it God wants? She said he wants our love. He wants our love. And, in four, and I, would, I would agree with you. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 that this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God wants us to be saved, wants us to come to knowledge of the truth. And then you know the text, both old and new, where it talks about he wants us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, mind, and soul. He wants us to love him and be saved. That's his heart's desire. Can God get his heart's desire by exercising his might and power? Well, let's look at evidence from Scripture and see what happened. He can get our attention that way, not our love. And first off, in your own lives, when people exercise might and power, again, does it instill automatically trust in you? No. How about if somebody who has might and power restrains the exercise of it and takes injury to protect you? Does that instill your trust? Wow. And he who was equal with God did not think equality was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant, taking injury upon himself, even though he had power? That engenders trust, isn't it? Let's look at some evidences in the Old Testament and see what happens when God uses power. In the first one, there's a lot of debate about this first exercise of power. Some are arguing it's not actually God doing it. But even if it wasn't God, if it was some natural thing, what did the people think? And that's the flood. The people who came out of the the ark and then started to propagate on earth, what did those people think about why the flood came? Did they think it was a natural disaster or did they think God did it? 
God did it. He warned them 120 years, I'm going to destroy this world with floods, so forth. So, God used power, at least they thought God used power. What did they do in response? Tower of Babel. In rebellion, trying to save self, trying to get into heaven. Uh, trust was not established. How about the plagues of Egypt? Shortly thereafter being delivered, they're worshiping the golden calf. How about the earthquake of Korah, Dathan, and Byron? We just read about that a few weeks ago. The next day, after Korah, Dathan, and Byron, all of them are wiped out. The very next day, it says the entire camp gathered together to worship and praise God. What did they do? They were in rebellion. The entire camp were, were, were in rebellion after this display of power. How about Mount Carmel? Fire comes down and, of course, consumes the uh, altar that Elijah built and, and all the water laps up everything. And, and the people said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And from that point on, the children of Israel are faithful and loyal servants of God, right? Or they're back into rebellion and idolatry. How about Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? Do you think if you saw Jesus on earth and saw someone that you were convinced was dead, in fact, he already stinks because his body is decomposing, that's what it says in the scripture, right? And, God, and, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Would that be a display of power? And what it, what's, the, what's the verses say right behind that? They left to immediately plot to kill him. They immediately went and plotted to kill him, is what it says. Display of power brought, let's kill him. How about when they go to arrest him and he puts on Malchus's ear? Now, you see a guy with a sword, Peter, whoosh, whack off a guy's ear, blood is spewing, because you know how head wounds bleed, right? So blood is spewing, ears on the ground, Jesus picks up the ear, goes, whoosh, it's on, blood stops, ears reattached. Display of power? And what did they do? They bound him and they crucified him. Do we have evidence that exercising power does not get people to trust and love God? Yes. I don't really think it would be any different. At least as we look at what God was doing there and the power of fire and all that because we have all of the evidence put together in one big picture. But if an alien spaceship landed and they blew the faces off of the presidents on Mount Rushmore and said, we just want to show you that we're strong enough to take care of you like God did at Mount Sinai, we would be pretty unsure of what our future was too. It was all of the evidence of history that makes us look back on those acts and go, those were acts of love. But at the moment, in that place and time, they needed more evidence. Even if they communicated and said, and we love you, and we're here for you, and... He did all kinds of acts of love and protection from them from the very beginning. I agree, it was all acts of love. Um, Do we have evidence from Scripture that exercising power establishes trust. It doesn't. And in fact, let's take God at his own word. Um, There was one. Israel was under attack. The Lord basically took the entire battle and won it. Yeah, that happened many times, actually. Yes. Mm -hmm. And after that, there was much celebration. They believed God had won them the great victory. And they stayed faithful and loyal and didn't go into idolatry thereafter. Yes, um, uh, yes, they, they, they valued our God is more powerful than your God. We celebrate the powerful God that we worship who can destroy you and your God. Yes. Um, he took this one step further. If that power was enough, 
And if we truly believe in the Bible, like we say we do, we have no doubt of the Bible, we have their picture and our picture, everything that's happened in between, we would be totally she said if power was enough, then why didn't God just exercise power and deal with Lucifer in the beginning and just exterminate him? He's got the power. I've got the power. Lucifer doesn't. Hey, you can trust me. I've got the power. But what does this say in Zechariah? Lord speaking through his prophet, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How do you understand that? See, oftentimes I've heard people say, well, that's not by human might and not by human power, but by the Spirit. Does the text say that? No, it says not by might nor by power. Can love be engendered in the heart by exercising might and power? How many of you proposed to your spouse by the exercise of might and power? Pulling out a gun, a knife... Some, some belt to beat them with and let them know that you are very powerful? No, it doesn't work, does it? How about self-sacrifice, where they know you're powerful, but you would give yourself for them? Does that engender trust? Yeah. Yeah. And thus we, we, we read in Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So when we look at acts of power with the right lenses on, we can see God was always acting in love. I don't dispute that at all. Because love will step in to protect with power if necessary. But ultimately, power alone doesn't win trust, does it? Like last week you said, they say I love God, but I love myself more. Yeah. That's what Israel did. Yeah, that's what Israel did. You got it. So... In our object lesson, the nation of Israel, God uses power to deliver them and also to discipline them, but they don't trust him more. So why did God do it? I would like any parents in the room to give me an example of why did God do it. Have you ever had to use might and power on your child? Any children, and we're all children at one time, had might and power used on them by your parent? Yeah. And the children initially, and why, why do parents do this? And we're talking loving parents, not abusive parents now. A loving parent, will a loving parent at times, if the circumstances warrant, exercise might and power in the life of their child? Yes. And the initial response of the child is always one of appreciation, understanding, uh, adoration, love. That's how the children always respond, right? Or is it initially often anger, opposition, and rebellion? Sometimes it takes years for them to appreciate what you've done, and sometimes they never appreciate. Isn't that true? Yes. Then why do loving pa- parents use exercise, the exercise might and power, if the children might misunderstand, if the children might rebel, if the children might never figure it out? Why would they do it? To keep them from danger. To keep them from danger. How about because the child needs it? Because it's ultimately in the best interest of the child, even though the child can't figure it out. But there's various forms of danger. There's physical danger, stay away from the stove. But there's also uh, psychological, emotional, and relationship dangers. And so when you see that spiritual dimension, a, a healthy parent is not thinking just of the physical danger. They're thinking of the consequences to character, the consequences to mind, the consequences of their eternal destiny. Was God thinking of those consequences in dealing with the people of the Old Testament? Dealing with us today. Sure he is. 
Sunday's lesson, in the, in the um, first paragraph, the last sentence, it says, The Lord wanted them and future generations never to forget that the whole story of the Hebrew people on the move in the wilderness was really the story about God and his dealings with sinful human beings in an effort to save them and bring them to the promised land. I think it's well stated that when we read these things, we must remember this is really about God, not about those people. It's about how God deals. We're learning about him and the, and the difficult circumstances that we, with our stubborn and rebellious hearts, often put him in. Last paragraph. Somebody read that for us. It starts, Compromise with the world. Compromise with the world has been and continues to be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides for the Lord's people. Unless we protect ourselves from the bad influences in the world and from the culture surrounding us, we are always in danger of allowing these things to corrupt our faith and lead us astray. So, I couldn't resist asking the question, you all heard that, that the, the influences of the world can corrupt us. Well, what does that look like today? Let's not look at Old Testament Israel with the idolatry and the fertility cults and all that stuff. Today, where we live, what does it look like to have, have God's people, quote, compromise with the world? Jewelry? Some would tell you that, wouldn't they? I'm a compromiser. I have a wedding band. Am I? Cosmetics. Some would argue that's compromising with the world. Clothing? Diet? Is this not what we often hear as the focus of compromising with the world? We want to be distinct and, and so we avoid these things? Hmm. About compromising our view of the, the nature of God and the character of God. You're ahead of me. Sorry. You're getting there. Yeah, no, you're exactly going where we're going. That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. So, Bad or wanting power under the cloak of doing good? Wanting the power under the cloak of doing good. And we come to value what the world values, which is entirely upside down from what God values. Who is closer to godly values, or maybe we should turn it since the, it's talking about compromising with the world. Who is closer to the world? The woman called in adultery in the very act, thrown at Jesus' feet, or those who threw her there? Who was closer to the the worldly principles? Whose heart was more open to be reached by Christ? The woman was less close to the world because she was more reachable by Christ. Yes or no? Yes. Wow, would we normally think that? Um, I mean, these were the church leaders. I mean, they go, they tithe, they go to church at the right time, they eat the right foods, they don't wear any of the wrong stuff, and they certainly wouldn't be caught in an adulterous affair. So who did they drag out? Well, she's clearly compromising with the world, isn't she? Question, is she compromising with the world or is she suffering under the weight of what the world does to people who haven't yet been delivered by Christ? Is there a difference between compromising with the world and suffering under the pain of what this world does to us when we haven't been delivered by Christ? Big difference. Do we miss that when we deal with people? Two other things then. What does compromise with the world look like if it doesn't look like this? How about where we send our kids to school? Does it matter? Do we choose schools with the primary focus in our heart's desire to have the school assist us in bringing the child to a knowledge of God and development of Christ-like character? That's the number one thing. 
Or do we choose schools that will give our kids an advantage in the world? Does it matter? Okay, I've gone from preaching to meddling, huh? (laughs) All right, how about what Russell said? Compromise with the world. What perspective does the world have about God? Those who actually don't know him, but they have a general belief that God exists, what is their perspective on the kind of being God is? God is exactly like us. He would do the exact same things we would do. If we would take vengeance on somebody, he took vengeance on somebody. But he's more powerful. Mm-hmm. Okay, He just has more power to do it. And this is why people are very happy. I'm going. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm not going to hold vengeance against you. You know why? Because I trust God. He's more powerful than I can. And he's going to make you suffer a whole lot worse than I ever could. You're going to get yours because God's going to take my vengeance on you. And I'm looking forward to the day that I can stand on the uh, the walls of the New Jerusalem and look out over that and see you suffer in the flames for what you've done to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You ever heard that picture of God? Many times he says. (laughs) Heaping coals of fire on your head by giving food and drink. Yeah, 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 exactly. It is right there, isn't it? Does the world teach that natural disasters come from God? Read your insurance policy. (laughs) Acts of God. This is the world's view of God. Do the natural disasters that happen come out from God? I've heard four or five no's. A lot of quizzical looks. This is um, out of a uh, book, uh, this is actually out of something called Manuscript Releases, written by Ellen White. We'll see if you agree with this, her, her, her belief on it. See if you value or, or think it's got insight or not. She says, I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from God upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, he corrects, he reproves, and he points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God. After repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey, and storm and tempest both by sea and land will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath, He is at work. He knows his time is is short, and he is not restrained. Remember it says in in Revelation chapter 7, an angel came out of the east saying to the angels, holding back the four winds, hold, hold, hold. What are they holding? The winds of strife. And who, who brings the winds of strife? We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Does the world have a different view when hurricanes hit? Uh, did you hear when Hurricane Katrina hit? Christian leaders in this country stood up and, and, and televised interviews and said, God was punishing New Orleans for its wickedness and its celebration of homosexuality. Did you hear that? Is that compromise with the world? When we take the world's view of God and promote it in the church as if it's true. Yes. But I also think that it doesn't mean just because something bad happened to you, there's something that you have tried to stray away from God and He's not protecting you. There are people that are close to God that things happen to them. And we're always questioning ourselves, oh, what did I do to cause this? 
Have I been away from him where he took his protection away from me? I don't think that's true. That is a great point of clarification. When we look at uh, traumatic things and and painful things that happen to us in this world, they can happen for a variety of reasons. One is that we have refused God's protection. That is a reason things can happen to us. Others is because, look at the case of Job. Job didn't refuse God's protection. And in fact, God makes a declaration from heaven that Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Yet, tragedy struck Job. Sure. Look at Christ. Christ did nothing wrong, yet he was beaten and crucified. Stephen, stoned, the apostles martyred. Yes, evil will seek to destroy good in this world, and God doesn't always intervene to protect that from happening. It doesn't mean that the, that the pain we might be suffering under is because that we have strayed. However, the natural disaster issues and the, and the controlling of weather, do we see God bringing on these huge uh, natural disasters uh, as, as manifestations of his anger. I don't think so. Yeah. And sometimes we worry so much about the physical pain and death that whenever it comes, we think it's something bad. Sometimes it's our own salvation. He said sometimes we so, we so worry about this human life of 70, 80, 100 years that we mistake in uh, God's interventions. And he says sometimes God allows the sleep death to come as part of our salvation and protection and deliverance from torment. So your position would be that natural disasters are never? I didn't say natural disasters couldn't come from God. He could. That's just what I yeah, but I don't see that as the problem. If you look at the history of Scripture, when the disciples in Christ were out on the, uh, on the lake and the tempest came, such that these fishermen who spent their life on the lake were out of control and couldn't handle the storm, and they thought they were going to sink, do we really think that God was bringing that? Or is that another manifestation of Satan's power trying to destroy the apostolic church and the Messiah before he could do his mission? You see that in the book of Job, when, when we talk about Job, when God's put Job in, in Satan's hands and, and removed the protective hedge that Satan acknowledged was around Job, a storm came and destroyed his kids. So Satan has, according to the evidence of Scripture, the capacity to affect weather and bring storms. And Job's servants credited to God. And Job's servants, the, the, the God did this. The fire of the Lord came. Mm-hmm. And then there's freedom of choice. We suffer because of other people's freedom of choice. Not our own and other people, you know, choose to get drunk and drive in a car and run over your child. Yeah, in fact, I, I was sent an email. I don't know if anybody's seen this email that's going around. You know, we all get them, you know. It's the, 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 the fantastic things. And evidently somewhere in the, in the West, the, this, this young kid, 19 years of age, was driving a pickup truck. Did anybody see this one? And, uh, and, he, and he ran through a guardrail over a culvert, and the car went 180 degrees backwards and lands right here. Okay, and it's safe. Right, well, it's a little like ledge. And then they pull back and show you the bigger picture, and it's like this thousand-foot drop down this ravine that, that he didn't go down. And, and they say, and, and the person who sends this email says, if you don't believe in God, you better now send this to everyone. <laughs> and my thought and my response was, and if he would have died, does that mean God is less loving or less, less real? For the person who runs through that guardrail some other time in the past or future and they didn't actually land on the other side and get saved, does that mean God doesn't exist? I mean, this is poor evidence, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, there are people we know who don't like God, think he's horrible because 
could a God that's good allow all of this? We see with Job, he allowed Satan to have his way with him, which looks like he's allowing the whole world to have Satan have the whole way with the world, and they hate God for allowing that. But I don't think they would like the God that they're asking for. Really well, it goes right to the question we're talking about power. Okay, let's talk about it. You have a loved one that got killed by a drunk driver crossing the road. I actually have a, a niece that wasn't killed, but she was uh, put in coma uh, because a drunk driver crossed the road, hit them head on, and she spent um, uh, weeks and weeks in the hospital and has had brain damage and all kinds of problems because of it. Um, somebody's killed by a drunk driver. Where was God in that circumstance? What, what should God have done? Should God have suspended the laws of, uh, of, of meta- metabolism of the human body so when that guy was drinking alcohol, it wouldn't alter neural uh, pathways and cause him to have uh, slowed reflexes and stuff? Should God have altered the normal physiology of the human body? Should God have sent an angel to stop him from being able to drink? Should God have altered the laws of physics so when the cars hit, they just bounced like rubber instead of... I mean, what was God to do? How far back do we take it? Should God have prevented this guy's mother and this guy's father from ever meeting so he was never born, so he didn't actually get in this car wreck? Are you seeing the problem here? See, if God starts using power to do all this stuff, then guess what? There's no freedom. We're all puppets. We're all being manipulated. He's the one who's actually predetermining us. The hyper-Calvinistic view says we have no choice. And if that's true, then there's no love. Because love only exists where there's freedom. I think we all have to admit, though, that somewhere, at least somewhere in our subconscious, anything less than the ideal for each one of us is a tragedy. Yeah, but see, that's the point. When we see it from God's perspective, we are going to get the ideal. You see, the ideal will be the restoration and eternal life that we have, not a transient life of a 100 years on earth with the bodies that continue to decay every decade that goes by. And some of the young people in this room, just wait. I know you don't feel it yet. You will. Am I right? Yeah. And, and, and see, one of the things I celebrate is I look in the mirror, and I, and I celebrate that I know when I see what's looking back at me in the mirror, this is not as good as God can do. God can do a lot better. When you look in the mirror, you think the same thing. Boy, he can do better than this. Isn't that true, guys? Yes. It's a, it's a joy to know that. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. I know it's not long, but remember the recent uh, student missionary that got murdered? My first question to myself was, where was her guardian angel? Her guardian angel was crying. I'm sure her guardian angel was crying. And I actually... I actually see a conversation with the guardian angel saying, Lord, can I stop it? Can I? Can I? And Jesus is crying and I say, no. No. We don't know exactly why he said no. But we will know why he said no at some point. And that's what Jesus had come to. Do you remember the story of the, um, of the Amish girls? I like that story because that story helps give us a little insight potentially as to why. See, God is not concerned primarily that he works to keep you alive for 100 years here. He wants to work to keep you alive for eternity. And from God's perspective, whether you live age 20 and die as a missionary, or you live 969 years as Methuselah and die, we all die young. Because God designed us to never die, eternity. So imagine a line from Earth to the sun, 93 million miles away, and every millimeter on a line that's 93 million miles long, every millimeter is a year of life. 
we have 20 millimeters and 969 millimeters on a line that's 93 million miles long. Is there any significant difference here? No, we all die young. God is not primarily concerned with how long we live here. He's primarily concerned with our heart being restored to unity with him, being conduits to reach out and minister his love to others, to bring them back to unity to him so that we can have eternity with him. That's his primary focus. And we can't always see that, but the Amish girls, I like that story because, not that, not that, not that it was a good story, but the tragedy brought through how love can shine through darkness. And this man, as he's, as he's, take these ten little girls and, and bound them all up, as it becomes obvious he's gonna kill them, um, 13 year old Marion Fisher stands up and says, shoot me first, let the other ones loose. And he shot and killed her. No sooner did she hit the ground than her, her 11 year old sister Barbie stands up and says, shoot me next offering their lives to protect the others. And she was shot five times and survived. And do you see love in action here? It's powerful. Does it move your heart to hear that? Yes. And see, they weren't afraid facing the, the, the gunmen. They didn't quiver. They didn't fear. That's what God wants to deliver us from, the fear. And that's what it says in Revelation, those that are ready to meet Christ. These words, if you're ready to meet him, if you're ready to see him, it says, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That survival of the fittest instinct that drives us to protect self all the time, watch out for self all the time, will be overcome as love is restored in our hearts and we come to love others more. We're not afraid. We don't live in fear anymore. And I'll even, I'll even save this. Christ created mankind in the beginning to have dominion over earth. Dominion. Let your mind meditate sometime on what that would have looked like. What, what is dominion? I think dominion included dominion over the forces of nature. The inanimate objects that have no free will, mankind was given dominion over. That's why you see Satan being able to affect weather now. But that would have been Adam's prerogative to govern this planet. Dominion over the planet. Acting in God's stead. The vice regent of earth with the power invested from God to act in his stead. Christ has come now. And Christ has reclaimed the rightful rulership of this planet. He again now is the, is the sovereign of earth. And you and I, as we are connected with him, get to act as his agents on earth. Exercising again dominion over the earth. What kind of power does Christ exercise? The power of love. That's our right. That's our privilege to give ourselves in love. Exercising dominion. I saw a hand somewhere. Yes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we ask from our perspective, Lord, send your guardian angels to watch over. Look at what's happening. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was praying that God will send his angels. If God, yes, there's nothing wrong with asking that. But do we ask, regardless of God's will, do you think that the apostle uh, Stephen wanted to be stoned that day? No. And when, when he was being stoned, what did, how did he describe him? His face was that of an angel. He was radiating like Moses coming off the mountain. Was he disconnected from God that day or really, really close? Really close. Yes. I think that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if he decides not to deliver me, we're not going to. Yeah, beautiful. His character, they said, we don't care. And that's not important. The important thing is. God's yeah, what they said to Nebuchadnezzar was exactly as you say, we know our God can deliver us from your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar, and the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. 
See, they didn't, they didn't lock God into a certain action that God had to take. They knew he could, but even if he didn't, in other words, they left him free to make the choice of what would be best in the circumstance. We're going to move on. Go ahead. Well, I, I think your question is real, one that I really struggle with, too, but I think sometimes when we, when God looks, yes, it is important. Our prayers demonstrate where we are. And I think if, if a thousand people got together and prayed for a situation and it was in the best interest of the big picture, our prayers would demonstrate where our hearts were. And God can move in different ways based on what's going on in our heart. It's not that some words have escaped our lips that change God's heart. It's actually what's going on in this world that changed God's heart. And our words are just a representation of that. Tuesday's lesson. We're moving on. I'm not even going to comment because we'll go, go somewhere else now. Okay. Tuesday's lesson. <laughs> we're, we're, we're moving on. Tuesday's lesson. Yes. This is a for all of us. When approaching or coming into contact with those our friends who don't know, as we do, and they don't have the privilege of Christian education or just being in church, they, they, the biggest problem I think you can see are the people who have problems with dealing with the God of love when there's tragedy. And um, I don't know but that's one of the bigger ones, is what you said about uh, our, our lives being so insignificant on this earth as compared to eternity, the best way to approach those people who don't know God. Yeah, thank you. No, I think you're exactly right, and I see that in my office all the time as I deal with people who come to see me after the loss of a loved one, depressed, discouraged, and don't have that, that, that eternal perspective. It's, they have a very bit difficult time. Is that the best approach to take? That is an approach to take. I think the best approach is the one that works with the person you're dealing with. And so that so, so works for some people. It doesn't work for others. And so we, we want to have several approaches. But, yeah, that one does work, and I've used it with people, and it really seems to help as they change perspective. The ultimate thing that you're trying to do with people who have that discouragement is help them change the viewpoint or perspective they're looking at the situation with. That is one way to help them change the perspective, and that's one analogy that can help. There's many others that can help as well. And that's the goal, though. Their, their perspective is too narrow. And that's why they're discouraged. We want to broaden or enlarge in their view. Um, Tuesday's lesson, cities of refuge. And at the time, they were designed, basically, if you read Numbers 35, the rules on the cities of refuge, if somebody accidentally killed another person, they could run to the city of refuge, uh, have their case heard, couldn't be killed by the, the, um, the person seeking blood vengeance, uh, have the case heard, uh, and if they were found to be innocent of, of the crime, or it was an accident, they had no intent to do harm, uh, then they could, live their, their, they could live safely in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Once the high priest died, they could go back to their home anywhere in the country and they couldn't be sought after by the, the seeker of blood vengeance. However, if the high priest didn't die and they leave the city of refuge, then the seeker of blood vengeance could kill them. Uh, a, a person who does premeditated murder could not run to the city of refuge for help. They would be killed and stoned on the spot. And the quarterly lesson says, with this in mind, on Thursday's lesson it says... The parallel about the cities of refuge, talking about the cities of refuge being how we run to Christ for our refuge, it says the parallel is not exact because our understanding of the cross is that even those who have committed premeditated sin, even murder, can be forgiven by the Lord. The cities of refuge were part of the Levitical cities that we talked about as we began. What is the metaphor? What are we trying to learn? And the sinner can, can certainly find refuge in Christ from death that comes from sin. But do you think that God gave an analogy, a metaphor, an object lesson of these cities that were, that were inadequate to teach the plan of salvation? The lesson is suggesting that. The lesson is suggesting that they're not exact and they're inadequate because a murderer can be 
forgiven by God and experience salvation. And the murderer could not run to the city of refuge, would be stoned. The lesson goes on to say, in, let's see, Tuesday's lesson, Tuesday's lesson, it says, yeah, at the bottom, some people don't understand how something like this could be reconciled with Bible texts about forgiveness or turning the other cheek. But what we're dealing with here is a criminal code. The gospel of forgiveness and grace as taught by Christ doesn't mean that crime, especially something as heinous, heinous as murder, goes unpunished by society. That a killer might even repent before God is really a different matter. What society can function if crime is not punished. What we see here is God's way of making sure that one of the worst crimes, that of murder, is dealt with fair uh, in a fair and just manner. Really. There's some seriously flawed logic with this paragraph. But this is how the world sees things. Let's, uh, let's, let's review. And first off, is God really setting up a system of, of, of justice here? Well, I'm going to read, let's go through the scripture and see in this system what warranted the death penalty. Okay? Starting with Exodus chapter 21, 12 through 17. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does it, if he if he does not do it intentionally, but lets it happen, he can flee to a place I will designate. This is what we're talking about, the city of refuge. But if a man schemes and kills another deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. So that's the first thing. What we're talking about here, murder, premeditated murder. Well, let's keep going. Next verse. Anyone who attacks his father or mother must be put to death. So the five-year-old kid who has a temper tantrum and, and punches and kicks their mother, we need to take him out and stone him. Except the only person who can accuse their child is the father and mother. Sure, I understand that. Yeah, but that's we're, we're just talking. Here's the standard. Kid strikes you, let's take him out and stone him. Well, let's keep going. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. You ever said a bad word to your parents? It's time to, let's get the bricks and go out in the parking lot, folks. <laughs> How many of us would be alive? How many of us would be alive? <laughs> Exodus 21, 28-30. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has a habit of goring, and the owner has been warned and not put penned it up, and it still and it kills a man or woman, the bull must be stoned, and the owner must be put to death. However, if payment is demanded of him, he can redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded of, by the family. Okay, uh, Exodus twenty-two nineteen and 20. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Observe the, sa- observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath uh, of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath must be put to death. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Israel, any Israelite or any alien living uh, in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The community is to stone him. Leviticus 20, 1 and 2. Leviticus 20, 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife... With the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, uh, (laughs) he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own head. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. 
what they have done is perversion, their blood will be on their own heads. And this is um, Leviticus 20, 12 through 16. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire so that no wickedness will be among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death, and you must kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. I mean, what did the animal do? <laughs> and then lastly, lastly, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces you to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to his words or that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love, you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and you must, uh, and who you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God. So what do we have here? Death penalty for murder, battery, kidnapping, reckless homicide or involuntary manslaughter, bestiality, idolatry, Sabbath-breaking, infanticide, verbal abuse of parents, adultery, homosexuality, homosexuality, and clairvoyance. Would you like a society like this? How many want to move to a society like this? Is the Corley right that God was making a distinction between character of love, forgiveness and grace, and how society should operate? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 38-42, you, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, take him out and stone him. No, 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 excuse me. Uh, turn him the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have his cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile, would that be kidnapping? Someone forces you against your will to go with them. If someone kidnaps you, go with him two miles. But wait, we have the law. It says stone him. Give the man who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Was Jesus talking about their civil law or not? He was quoting directly from Exodus 21, the civil law. So how do we understand the Old Testament laws? What is the context? What kind of people were receiving these laws? Former slaves. Former slaves. They obviously needed a decree against incest. Yeah, I, I gave this analogy before, but to help you understand my, my understanding of why God gave the death penalty for everything, um, in the last several years after we've invaded Iraq, some uh, reporters from NPR went over to Iraq uh, to see what was the deal of all the civilians being killed over there. So all because of something we're doing or other things going on. And they reported on the case of a grocery, uh, a grocery store clerk and the uh, grocery store owner and the three people that worked at that grocery store were shot, killed, and the store was firebombed because, not by us, but by local religious people because a local cleric, Muslim cleric, gave a fatwa, a, an edict, that you are not to s display celery stalks next to tomatoes. No. See, standing up celery stalks next to tomatoes, according to the, fa the fatwa, could be misunderstood as an erect male. A sexual connotation, in other words. And so this order was given. You are not to stand up the celery stalks next to tomatoes on the pain of death. Well, they displayed their 
produce in the wrong way. And so they were all shot and killed, and the store was firebombed. Now, let's say you are the governor, uh, magistrate of Baghdad, appointed by uh, the ambassador to oversee the, uh, the civil laws of Baghdad. And you're dealing with this group of people who have this mindset. In your judgment, not theirs, in your judgment, which is more serious? Standing up celery stalks next to tomatoes or driving drunk? Which is more serious in your judgment? If you want them to consider driving drunk to be as serious as standing celery stalks up next to tomatoes, what will you have to give it as a penalty? Death penalty. If you say $500 fine for driving drunk, but death penalty for standing up celery stalks next to tomatoes, guess what? Which is more serious a crime? This is what God was dealing with in the Old Testament. A primitive people with very, very warped thinking. And he had to help them see, not because you think uh, driving drunk really warrants a death penalty in your judgment, but because that's their warped thinking. There was other case reported of a, of a young man, who, a boy, he was a 12-year-old boy, was out playing in a field, and he was just tossing stones like boys often do, and he hit a man's cow in the eye, blinding one of its eyes. The man shot and killed the boy. Now, God was dealing with people like that, so he had a law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, a life for a life. You could not take the boy's life. The most you could do was take an eye. And I'm not even sure you could take an eye for an animal. You could take an eye of his cow. Maybe he owns the cow, you take the cow's eye. But that's what God was dealing with. I don't think this was the standard for civil justice. And in fact, the lesson says that crime was to be punished in order to be just. But Jesus says, or the Bible says through, through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented him, Christ, as our sacrifice of atonement, hilasterion, the means of reconciliation, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant is the, is the word there. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Hmm. Are we taking the world's view of God? Are we compromising with the world and misrepresenting God's character? God has not been seeking to punish sin at all since man fell into sin. He's been seeking to heal, redeem, and save, and recreate us in righteousness. What is, according to the Bible, the wages of sin? What death? Sleep in the grave until the resurrection death? Or an eternal non-existence? How many have suffered that yet? Zero. God has been working to redeem and heal and save from sin. But sometimes what he does is remove people who are such an influence on everybody else or, or maybe like a lion among gazelle. He has done that. So let's look again at the old, let's look at the Old Testament and look at the system of justice. I just read you all those crimes were met with, met with, uh, with uh, death penalty. How did God apply those? David. Man after God's own heart. Adultery warrants what penalty? Murder results what penalty? Did he premeditate to have Uriah killed? Did God have David killed? When Nathan came in and Nathan, the prophet of God, confronts David, did Nathan instruct the people to take David out and stone him? Whoa. Okay. Maybe this isn't the society that the, that the, that the quarterly suggests God was setting up. How about Manasseh? Anybody heard of Manasseh? 
had Isaiah sawed in half in a log, took his own son and offered him to Molech. You may know Molech was a, a god formed out of iron, and they would have a hollow inside, and they would build a fire inside until this iron turned red hot, and then the worshippers would take their infant sons and throw them where they scalded them to death, and they would burst into flames on this god. Manasseh, and Solomon, by the way, also, Solomon and Manasseh both offered their sons to Molech. Do we find God, and in fact, God, we look at Manasseh, the Assyrians came, put a fish hook in his nose, took him away to prison, in the Assyrian prison. And while he was in prison, the Bible's very clear, Manasseh repented before God. And what did God do? He had the Assyrians set him free and put him back on his throne. We're not stoning him to death. I mean, this is the history of what God did. Why? Because the quarterly is wrong. God's primary concern is about the heart and mind of people. And think it through. If somebody's committed a crime, but they, because the quarterly says it doesn't matter about repentance and reconciliation with God, it matters everything about repentance and reconciliation with God. When David repented, and he did, after his heart, you read Psalms 51, he was a changed man, he had a new heart and a right spirit, David was no longer a danger to society. And you find the life of David, after his confrontation and his repentance, he never exploited somebody again. He never took advantage of somebody again. He was a man who was seeking to do God's will from that point on. He was safe. You could trust your daughter. And in fact, at the end of his life, a little 17-year-old young lady with high metabolism got to be his water bottle, remember? Kept him warm in bed. But it says that David never knew her. They weren't introduced? No! He didn't take advantage. He didn't try to do things that were inappropriate. He was a changed man. We find the evidence, and this is what God is all about, changing hearts and minds so that we can be trusted, that we love others more than ourselves. And then we want to close up with what we started with, and we're about out of time. And this is a point we want to make about the, the cities of refuge, the cities of refuge and the object lesson that they are to teach. The lesson suggests that it's an imperfect lesson because the murderers couldn't run there. I suggest to you it's not an imperfect lesson. They represent what? The cities represent Christ. We can run to Christ for our refuge from sin. As long as we abide in Christ, we cannot be consumed or destroyed by sin. We must abide in Christ, and Christ must, as our high priest, come and finish the work he came to do, die on the cross, resurrect, in order for us to be eternally saved. Once he's done that, our eternal security. And then we can, we can go out as his ambassadors, still abiding in him, but we can go out anywhere now. We will ultimately go into our eternal promised land. But, What about the murderer? The murderer couldn't run there. Why? What's it designed to teach? Well, maybe Jesus gives us some insight in John 8, 44. Listen to this. We're thinking about the metaphor, the object lesson. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in his day, said, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The cities represent Jesus. The murderers represent, how does the devil murder? It says right in the text. John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that, you, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now ascent. Life eternal is knowing God. What would eternal death be? Not knowing God. Satan is the father of? If, and what does he lie about? Or who does he lie about? And if you believe the lies, guess what happens in you? You're severed from God. That's what lies do. They sever us from God. And if we're severed from God, we don't know Him. We don't have life. 
And so the point I think it's making here is that the murderer represents those who hold to lies about God. If you hold to lies, just like Satan is the murderer who has been lying from the beginning and continues to lie, if you hold to lies about God, can you find refuge in Jesus? No. And that is what is being taught here. Only those who reject the lies of Satan and come to the truth about God as revealed in Jesus can find refuge in Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not abandoned us in our darkness, in our weakness, in our, in our confused minds. But you have sent Christ to overcome where we could not overcome, to bring the truth that we need. Send your Holy Spirit now who has who's taken all that Christ has, has provided and, and let him restore that in our hearts and minds. Bring our desires into harmony with yours, our thoughts into harmony with yours. Fill our hearts with your love that we can be shining lights for you, going out as your agents, your ambassadors, your representatives, bringing the dominion of love to bear on planet Earth again. We pray in your holy name. Amen.